Okay, so over the past seven weeks, uh, we've spent time in the Gospel of John. And there are seven signs uh, and seven statements in the Gospel of John that are these main, main scenes that reveal who Jesus is. And John wrote his Gospel so that those of us who read it would believe and live. He tells us that plainly in chapter 20, verse 31. At the end of the book of John, he writes, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So during these sermons, we've looked at uh, most of Jesus' signs and statements. John has written about them like scenes from a movie, and in each of these scenes, there's a common theme. People come to Jesus with their expectations, and they find that there's much more to him uh, than the Jesus that they thought they knew. Right? Their understanding of Jesus gets recalibrated. Their faith gets refined. Their devotion gets tested. And Jesus comes into focus more clearly. We've seen that each time. Well, now we're in chapter 11 of John, and we're looking at Jesus' seventh sign, and the pattern is no different. Jesus does the opposite of what we think he would do. He does the opposite of what we might think he should do. His friend who he loves is sick and about to die. And Jesus, who has healed all these strangers, we've talked about it even, he intentionally delays his visitation, and he confuses everyone. And when he finally gets there, no one knows what to expect from him. They know what he could have done if he hadn't delayed, but they're not sure what he's going to do when he arrives four days after this man has died. Now, this whole story is 55 verses. It takes up the entire chapter of uh, chapter 11 of John. And so we have a lot of scripture that we're going to work through today, but it's, it's great because it's a story. And so uh, the reason why it's good to go through a lot of scripture when it's a story is because if we cut it up and dice it up, uh, we're going to lose some of the beauty that's just automatically in there from the author. And so, uh, to, but to help us to remember uh, what we're learning about, I have a little roadmap that we're going to go through. We're going to put everything under three headings. We're going to look at pain, we're going to look at promise, and we're going to look at power. And specifically, we're going to talk about our pain God's promise, and Jesus's power. So just as a reminder, we're in chapter uh, 11 of John this morning, uh, and we see a lot of pain in this story. Let's look at what happened. We just read the first uh, few verses together, so let's talk about those first. Who is this family from Bethany? Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. It's the first time in John's gospel that we hear about this family, but they do show up in the New Testament and other places. Uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus meets this family during his travels as he's ministering. Martha welcomes him into their home. Luke writes about Jesus' meaningful interactions with both Martha and Mary. And apparently, Jesus had become really close to this family. They housed him. They became friends you know, Jesus had friends, right? He's fully God, but he's also fully human. He had friends. They ate together. They served one another. They loved each other. And that's why when they send to Jesus, they describe their sick brother as the one he loves. 
Jesus's beloved friend. Jesus cared deeply about this whole family. And so what does he do when he finds out that they're in distress? John writes, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, Lazarus, so that when he heard that he was sick, but he rushed right there right away and healed him, right? If you have your Bible open, you know that that is not what Jesus did, right? Uh, no, it's not what happened. It says, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. That's not what you would expect, right? When you love someone, you drop everything, right? You run to their bedside when they're sick and dying. John says Jesus loved them, so he stayed. He doesn't say Jesus loved them, but he stayed. He writes, he loved them, so he stayed, as if the reason that he stayed was because he loved them. This made as little sense to the people around Jesus as it does for us now. Why would he stay, right? Why wouldn't he go and help his friend? Well, he explains to his disciples in verse 4, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So he has a plan. We're just unsure exactly what his plan is. And apparently that goes for Mary and Martha as well, Lazarus's sisters. Uh, we'll see that further down. They're waiting for Jesus. And we know he has a plan, but we're unsure what it is. Now, sometimes we don't understand the details of God's plans. I mean, we could probably get Jesus there in time to save Lazarus, right? Chart the fastest course on, on Google Maps, make sure that he takes all the right roads, get him there. Right? We, we could probably think of ways Jesus could be helping us right now, too, right? Would it be so hard for him to just give me what I've been asking for today, to give me what I've been asking for now, right? Is anyone here waiting for something? Right? Waiting is hard. Waiting for God to provide something that you've been praying for, the thing that would just relieve some of life's pressure, or, or waiting for him to fix something that's been broken in your life. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's an internal struggle. Right? We could name the things that God should help us with today. And we often don't understand why he waits or, or why he says no. We like the stories where we pray for a car, right? And then the next day, one shows up, <laughs> right? We like the stories where we're running out of money and we pray and a check arrives just in time. We love those stories. Or when we're faced with danger and we're delivered or sickness and we're healed, right? Just in time. But those are not the only stories of faith. Faith is forged also in the waiting, right? And God's love for us is just as strong in the waiting as it is when we get the car the next day. And John tells us that in verse 5. He says, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. God loves us in his delay. And his delays are just that. They're delays. They're not always final. Right? Sometimes it is a no, but sometimes it is just something you need to wait for. 
and he has reasons for delaying. Some things you might just be waiting longer for, and that's okay, right? And some fulfillments that you're asking him for, you might not experience until you see him face to face. You might not experience that until you experience it in your deepest soul face to face when you see Jesus. Jesus is never late for his appointments. And Jesus doesn't need us to get on Google Maps and chart his course to Bethany to save Lazarus. If he wanted to save Lazarus, he could just tell the messenger, go. Lazarus has been healed. He's done that before. Earlier in this book, we talked about it. He healed a sick little boy. He just said, go, your son will live. He doesn't need to be there. But after delaying two days, he says to his disciples in verse 7, Let's go to Judea. And Judea is the region where Bethany was. It's also the region where Jerusalem was. And John tells us they're only two miles apart. And there's a reason for that because Jesus uh, was just in Jerusalem and people were trying to stone him and kill him. And so uh, people aren't happy there. That's why in verse 8, his disciples are confused. They say, people just tried to stone you there. Why are you going back in that area? And again, it seems like Jesus isn't making sense. It it looks like Jesus has a death wish, right? Both for Lazarus and himself. First, he delays visiting his friend. Now he's heading to a place where people want him dead. Why is he willingly walking toward pain and death? He tells them in verse 9, he tells them that they need to keep working while it's day and that he's getting... um, and, and what he's trying to, to get across to them is that he's not going to be walking with them much longer. Right? The sun is going to set on his ministry, and a dark time is coming. He tells them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples say to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll get well. And we know when we hear Jesus say that Lazarus has fallen asleep that it means Lazarus is dead. Right? But and that's from later New Testament books where, where it's talked about believers um, falling asleep in Christ when they die. It's one way of talking about death as a temporary experience for a Christian. But that way of talking about death would have been kind of new to them. Uh, it wasn't really talked about like that in the Old Testament. And, and that's the scripture that they were working with. So they're general, genuinely confused. And he finally tells them plainly in verse 14, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. So Lazarus dies. And they arrive in Bethany, the town where he lives. He's been in a tomb now for four days. Later on in this passage, it will tell us that Jesus is still outside the town So he hasn't gone fully in the town yet, but people have already come from out of town. Um, Various Jewish people have come from out of town to mourn with his sisters. The Jewish custom was to mourn for seven days. And in fact, uh, Jewish people still practice this. If you've ever heard of sitting Shiva, right? Uh, It's this seven-day period of mourning. So Jesus enters a highly emotional, very painful scene. And as soon as Martha hears that he's coming, she runs to the border of the town to meet him. And verse 20 says, Mary stayed seated at the house. And if we looked at the the description of these two women in Luke's gospel, 
This is in line with their personalities. In, in Luke's gospel, Ma Martha is really active. Mary is really contemplative. And so they've been waiting for Jesus, and Martha runs out, right? They've been waiting at least four days. Martha's eyes are probably filled with tears. She runs to him. She says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And at first we might see this as her blaming Jesus. But, but if we go on in the passage, her behavior uh, and later on in the passage, it's not consistent with that. Um, these are words of grief and faith. She believes that if Jesus had been there, he wouldn't have died. And she doesn't know where Jesus has been. She doesn't know what he's been up to. But she knows he loved her brother and he would have done something if he had been there. And Jesus kind of said the same thing back in verse 14. He insinuates that if he were there, he probably would have healed Lazarus. And he's glad that he wasn't there because he wants them to see and believe. So Martha is in pain and she runs to Jesus. She might not understand this delay, but when he arrives, he's the only person she wants to see. Do you know, even today, where we don't have the physical Jesus present with us, we can come to him in our pain, right? Even the pain we experience as we're waiting for him. And these moments of pain, uh, anxiety, frustration, when we're helpless, it's a good thing to ask ourselves, how do we respond, right? Do, do we keep ourselves as busy as we can, do you shut down and isolate yourself? If you're like me, do you research and gather all the information you can about the problem and try to build up this arsenal of knowledge and information and think that having all that information is going to give you some control over the situation? Right? Maybe you are. Or, or do you stop, right, and take a breath and come to Jesus and even be so bold as to say honestly how you feel through your tears. Right? In helplessness, knowing that your problem might not be solved there and then, but that Jesus is more than just your problem solver. He's also your friend. Right? Martha does this. She says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she says in verse 22, Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She knows that Jesus is still Jesus, even in her rough circumstances. Right? He has said that he and the Father are one, and she believes it. She believes that he has that connection. Now it's, it's hard to argue uh, that she's expecting what's about to happen, though. But we'll see that, that her heart is set on the promise of God. Jesus tells her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's thinking about this big picture, right? In the distant future, God speaks this promise of resurrection in the future. And a lot of Jewish people believed that back then. Not all of them, but a lot of them did. But she's thinking of this big picture, this promise. Uh, you know, God speaks promises to pain, right? God speaks promises to pain. And when Jesus tells her that her brother will rise again, he's talking about the resurrection, 
right? But, but remember how these stories have gone in John. Uh, if we look at the, all of these seven signs, we've looked at seven of them so far, there's always more clarity about Jesus to be gained. He says this thing like, like your brother will be raised, and she's thinking, oh, yes, I know. Like, you know, in the future, when the resurrection happens, uh, Martha's looking ahead to a resurrection uh, that's in the future, right? They knew there was going to be a day, this general day, when the dead would be raised. He would be raised when the messianic kingdom was ushered in on the last day. But it doesn't seem to be on her mind to ask Jesus to raise her brother today. Right, and here's what Jesus says back to her. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that's a good question for us too. Do I believe this? She's looking forward to a distant day in the future, but the resurrection is with her in that moment. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Then he clarifies the promise that she was clinging to. Resurrection isn't found in a distant day alone, right? It's found in a person, Jesus. And the promise that is that anyone who believes in him, even if they die, they'll live. And everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. This is the Christian hope. This is the ultimate promise that God gives us in our pain. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's going to prove this when he himself dies, right? When he spends three days in the tomb, when he is raised from the dead, and his promise is that anyone who believes in him will be raised. But he also calls himself the life. And, and last week we talked about how Jesus came to give abundant life. And this week Jesus says, I am the life. Resurrection is a day in the future, but eternal life begins the day you believe in Jesus. See, Martha is looking forward to a future day, and that's good. But what's even better than knowing that we can what's even better than knowing that we can experience um, resurrection in the future is also knowing that we can experience spiritual life today while we wait, right, through faith in Jesus, because He's alive today right after he was raised from the dead he ascended into heaven he was seated at the right hand of the father and we can celebrate the assurance that we have the resurrection in jesus right jesus the resurrection was in the flesh with martha that day and there are two things that god always gives us in our pain two things god gives us his promises and God gives us his presence. Right? He has a plan, and he is with you. Can he still do miraculous things today? Of course he can. God can do whatever he wants to do. Right? Does he promise that when we pray for a miracle, he's going to give it to us? No. He does promise that he'll be with us. He does promise that if we believe in him, we'll have eternal life. Right? And you don't have to die to experience the life that Jesus gives. What we talked about last week, remember this idea that 
a lot of people feel like God is unknown and that they'll meet him when they die. No, Jesus has made himself known and you can experience life today. I was 24 when I trusted Jesus. I became a believer 12 years ago. And I can tell you that my life was changed forever. Right? When you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you. He begins to work in you. And the Bible says in the book of Philippians that God will complete that work. But the point is, God continues to work in you. He continues to move you toward Christ-likeness. There's, there is an experiential side to receiving eternal life. It's what hope does to the soul. Right? Hope doesn't remove hard times in our lives, but it does carry us through them. Jesus is the resurrection, right? a promise for the future, and Jesus is the life, a promise for today. Jesus asks Martha, do you believe this? And she says in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. And again, this whole progression is something that you'll see Jesus do throughout the book of John in all of these accounts during all these signs that he performs. He helps people to get to the truth about who he is. He helps them to discover, discover it, and he, and he challenges them to deepen their faith and their understanding of who he is. He's just done that for Martha, right? And no miracle has occurred. There hasn't even been a miracle yet. Right? This is all before the big miracle. So why do it before? Right? Why do it before? Why not wait until she's amazed at what she sees and then interpret it for her? It matters to Jesus that when she sees the miracle, she will truly know the one who's performing it. Right? It matters to him that when we receive the miracle, that we know the one who is truly performing it right? Uh, it matters to him that she understands the significance of what she's about to see, because that's the point of Jesus's signs, actually, that they would point to who he is and why he came. And she's about to see the power of Jesus in a way that she's never seen before. And we've talked about the pain. We've talked about the promise. Now let's look at the power of Jesus. After confessing Jesus as the Messiah, Martha goes back to her house to get Mary, and it seems like Jesus wants to have a private conversation with her, but all the folks who are mourning uh, with the family, they follow her because they think she's running out to the tomb to go and cry. And then when Mary encounters Jesus, she says the same thing to him that her sister said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And when I have read this passage before, uh, I've always understood it to mean that Jesus was really sad because everybody was so sad and that his friend was, died, was dead. I was surprised to see when I was researching this that the term deeply moved, uh, there's an original Greek word and it and it has more to it than what our English translations can convey. And sometimes that happens. I don't like to overdo talking about the original Greek because our modern English translations or even Portuguese translations, they're done very well and they can be trusted. But this term, 
in other Greek literature, it can refer literally to the snort of a horse. Or, or when referring to humans, it often means outrage or emotional indignation. So when Jesus saw all of this, he experienced this emotional indignation in his spirit, and he was troubled. He was sad, but he was more than sad, right? The emotion was stronger than sadness. It moved a little bit into anger, or maybe a lot into anger, right? He doesn't respond to what Mary says, but why is he indignant? Why is Jesus outraged and troubled in this moment? John doesn't give us an explanation, right? He doesn't say he was outraged and indignant because people were, you know, expecting him to do all this stuff. No, he doesn't say that. We're not specifically told. Uh, He just says that the sight of Mary crying and everyone else crying brought him to this point. And so the best thing I can do is just repaint the picture of what's going on. Now, did you know that it was customary, even for a poor Jewish family back then, to hire two flute players and a professional crier when a loved one died? Right? It seems kind of silly to us to hire somebody to just cry on behalf of the family, but that's what they would do. I I didn't know this before I researched this sermon either, but this was the custom. So it's likely that Mary might have had these folks, Mary and Martha might have had these folks Uh, at their house. So Mary has this parade of people following her as she goes to talk to Jesus. They're weeping, they're wailing, and there's potentially flutes playing, right? These displays of grief. And she comes to tell Jesus uh, that if he had been there, her brother would still be alive. The same thing her sister says. In verse 36, there are some in the crowd even who are mumbling to each other, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? No one around Jesus has asked him to do anything. They're all focused on what he could have done, right? The resurrection is in front of them, but how are they responding to him, right? At the same time, his friend who he loves has died, and his friends who he loves, they're, they're in deep, deep pain, experiencing the sharpest stage of grief. But he knows what he's there to do. He told his own disciples, I'm on my way to wake Lazarus up. And not long from this day, Jesus himself will be dead in a tomb. This is very close to when he died. He's going to feel the pain of death himself as he's crucified, as he takes on the sin of the whole world. He knows that he'll be raised, right? But he still has to die a real death. Jesus, who just called himself the resurrection and the life, has to die a real death. And the miracle that he's about to perform is actually what seals his fate. And we'll see that in a bit. This miracle results Uh, in the religious leaders calling for his death, plotting his murder. After he does this, there's no going back. And so you can see why in this moment Jesus might be deeply moved in his spirit, why the emotion he's feeling is just stronger than sadness. Verse 34, this is all he says. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And verse 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. No one hates death more than God. Jesus 
weeps for his friends. Another way to say this is Jesus burst into tears publicly. God grieves our losses with us because this isn't the way things are supposed to be. You can rest assured that if you have lost someone you love and you are grieving their death, that God has grieved that death with you. This is why Jesus came to die. This is why God loved the world by sending his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came to defeat death. Death is the result of sin, and so Jesus died for sin and defeated death when he was raised. And like so many of his signs, the one that he's about to perform is a foretaste of what's to come. It's a preview of death's defeat. Let's look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. It's a lot like where Jesus is going to be buried. Verse 39, remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he's been dead four days. This is how we know Martha wasn't expecting what Jesus was about to do. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I say this so that they may believe you sent me. Jesus doesn't need the crowds to hear, doesn't need the crowds to um, hear this prayer, right, for it to be answered. But just like with Martha, he wants them to understand that God the Father has sent him. He wants them to understand this before they see what they're about to see. Verse 43, after this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Can you imagine being there when he said this? Right? Watching them move the stone and open this four-day-old grave. And I bet the flutes stopped. Right? The professional, professional crier became quiet. The mumblers were silent. I'd imagine there was at least a short silence after he called out, people holding their breath. Like, what is going to happen? And then verse 44, it says, The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And that was their custom to to do that for, for burials. And so Lazarus came out, right? And Jesus said to them, Unwrap him and let him go. Right? In verse 45, we see that many believed in Jesus because of this miracle. But in verse 46, we see some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests of Israel and the Pharisees, they're unhappy with this. This this is the true tipping point for them. They think Jesus is getting too big. And they say in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they decide that it's best for Jesus to die. 
to die for the nation, right? And they put out an order to arrest him if he shows his face in Jerusalem again so that they can kill him. And then, ironically, they want to kill Lazarus, too, because, you know, he's going around telling people about this. This man who has been raised from the dead, they decide they're going to try to kill him again. Um, And we know that eventually Jesus does allow himself to be arrested, and they do, in fact, have him killed. But like Lazarus, Jesus was raised from the dead. Only unlike Lazarus, Jesus was raised imperishable, right, with a new body. See, Lazarus was brought back to life as a preview. Jesus was raised as the first of many. The Christian hope hinges entirely on the resurrection of Jesus because if he was raised, those who believe in him will also be raised. And it's a promise of God that speaks to our pain. But it's not hypothetical. God has done it, and God will do it again. So let's bring our pain to the promises of God as we hope in the power of Jesus. I want to close with 1 Corinthians 15:53. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. We are able to say this because of the work of Jesus Christ.